Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's issue of Chess Life magazine. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess podcasts, which include one move at a time on the second Tuesday of each month, in which I talk to people who are advancing our mission statement, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis, in which she examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org or subscribe via Google or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Al Lawrence is our guest today on Cover Stories with Chess Life. Al was the U.S. Chess Executive Director from 1988 to 1996 and is the current Managing Director of the U.S. Chess Trust. He has been Chess Journalist of the Year three times in 2000, 2016, and is the current uh, reigning champion as Chess Journalist of the Year. He's also our first four-time guest on this podcast. In 2018, he was on in May for his U.S. Amateur Team East story and in his in November for the U.S. Open story. In March of this year, he was our guest for his story on Dwayne Barber, the Dean of Scholastic Chess. Welcome back to Cover Stories with Chess Life, Al Lawrence. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. And your story uh, for this December issue is 80 Years of U.S. Chess. This month, uh, December 27th is the date we've pinpointed as the, uh, the day of our founding. We mark 80 years as an organization. And and you've been around for a big chunk of it. You, you mentioned in your article that you were uh, the executive director for the 50th anniversary. For the 50th and for the 55th. That's right. Uh, 19, 19, um, as you mentioned, I came in as exec in 1988. Um, and 1989 was our 50th. But I worked for, for U.S. Chess. Um, before that, I, I started on staff in 81. And uh, I certainly worked on USCF projects, for example, uh, bringing the state of Missouri into U.S. chess um, as a state affiliate in the in the s- 1970 when I came back from Vietnam. So been working with USCF a long time. Um, and interesting that you mentioned about bringing in Missouri because, um, you know, People may not realize that not every state has, you know, always been a member of uh, an affiliate of the organization. And in fact, um, in this December issue in the My Best Move column, we talk about how Alaska has just uh, become an affiliate again. Right. Sometimes things happen, and the affiliate lapses, and um, you have to uh, make proposals all over again, which is what happened to us in in Missouri about 1970. One thing I would ask you right off the bat. Uh, and we're going to remove Fisher from this uh, equation and from this question. What is the most fascinating aspect of U.S. chess history to you? And again, uh, we, we we can't bring Fisher into this question. Okay, um, I think I think it's good to frame the question that way. You know, um, other otherwise uh, uh, everything else gets put in kind of a shadow. Um, the most interesting aspect. Uh, certainly, there are a number of ones that uh, that challenge that question, but I, I think the 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 original uh, attempt that turned out to be flourishing uh, was the most interesting to me because 
in many ways because um, um, the fractionalized chess organizations in the U.S. and I go into that in my uh, in my story in Chess Life um, really picked one of the most challenging times in American history to try to bring an organization uh, uh, to life. Uh, you know, it was it was nineteen it was nineteen thirty nine. Uh, the uh, roughly fifteen percent of the people were still totally unemployed. Many people still uh, very, very under uh, in, uh, employed. Uh, the world was going to war. Um, Nazi uh, uh, submarines uh, were sinking uh, ships in the North Sea. Um, war was World War. Everybody saw was on the horizon. And uh, this is the time they picked <laughs> to give birth to the U.S. Chess Federation. Um, you, you might, you know, if you were a betting man at the time, you might, you might not have put a lot of money on the survival of U.S. chess. But what happened was <clears throat> dedicated people, incredibly dedicated people over the decades. Um, and then when some people made mistakes, uh, other people came along and worked very hard to, to turn things around. So the initial birth and the ongoing, um, the ongoing work by volunteers uh, and some very smart ones. And then when we didn't have the smartest ones sometimes that made mistakes, there were people that came along that were so dedicated that uh, put things right again. So I think it's the sweep. It's the time that we uh, were um, organized in certainly one of the most challenging times ever in the United States in so many ways. And the fact that we've come out on the other end 80 years later uh, as an extremely strong uh, organization. And, you know, we <clears throat> there were progenitor organizations, certainly. I mean, there were... There were organizations that we have to credit, and I mentioned them uh, as precursor organizations in my article. Um, but just to give you a, a, give people a sense of it, um, the earliest chess organizations, say the 1857, um, after the the famous uh, tournament that um, that Morphy won, I think we all know the story, or many of us know the story about him refusing the first prize in cash and taking the the silver set instead because he abjured just professionalism personally. And that silver set is in the, in the hall of fame, hall of fame now in St. Louis, one of the, the hallmark uh, exhibits from time to time. <clears throat> but, uh, that organization, uh, predated was a real chess organization. It didn't survive, but it, it flourished for a while. It, um, it popularized chess for a while. Uh, it predated any baseball organization, any basketball organization. Uh, so chess is certainly one of the earliest organized. Um, and that was a, a wandering answer to your question. Uh, but, but since there's not one specific um, uh, event that I think is the most interesting, I think the, uh, the survival and the flourishing of the whole organization is really the story. Yeah, it really struck me because uh, what you mentioned as you set the groundwork for our organization's birth years is you, you cover this in your first paragraph talking about the Depression and, and the onset of World War II. And it just occurred, it struck me as, yeah, let's start a hobbyist organization with, with all these awful things happening in the world. Right. <laughs> 
yes, it's, it's, it's kind of funny when you think about it. You know, uh, everybody is getting ready to go into uniform and march around and go overseas. And so let's start a chess club. And so that, that's taking a giant look backwards. And I'm going to challenge you uh, to, to look forwards now. Uh, you know, as we look now towards a 100th anniversary, uh, a scant 20 years away from us, you know, look into your crystal ball and taking a look at how fast the chess world is changing right now. It's just so drastically different than it was 20 years prior to now. What do you think we'll be talking about on this show uh, when you do your 100th anniversary recap of U.S. chess? Ah, well, well, my, uh, hmm, I don't know if it'll be uh, important enough, but certainly my obit. But, <laughs> um, you know, uh, let, let me take one little step back on your question. Uh, right now is a time that, uh, that, that I and my contemporaries, my fellow volunteers, staff members, we couldn't imagine uh, what U.S. chess members have at their fingertips now. Um, sometimes it involves travel, but we have the we have wonderful tournaments almost every weekend to choose from. National tournaments, the Hall of Fame itself, you know, with um, I think they've had 115,000 visitors in St. Louis at the Hall of Fame just for uh, the 80th uh, anniversary. I think I've got that right. Just for the 80th anniversary. So, so um, um, you know, when we watch the broadcasts of the championships from St. Louis, we never imagined such a thing. So it's very hard for me uh, to project beyond that because I still sit stunned <clears throat> at the accomplishments just in the last few years. Um, what will we be doing? I don't know. We can, alre we can already play anybody in the world a five-minute game at, at 9 o'clock at night if we want a blitz game. Um, I suppose uh, we'll be into uh, uh, virtual presences, you know, instead of uh, traveling to a tournament, say the Senior uh, World Championship in Assisi, Italy in 2020, Instead of having to get on a plane, maybe I, maybe I go to a tournament site, and um, uh, it's as, it's as through the through the magic we're developing now in electronics. Perhaps it appears to me the same as being there. Maybe that's my best guess. What do you think? Well, whenever I'm asked about looking into the future, I it my answer always involves some version of flying cars. So as long as I'm being able to pl play chess in my flying car, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be okay. <laughs> Back in the Jetsons, okay. <laughs> um, so I, I asked you in the initial question to remove Fisher from the equation, but let, let's bring him back in because he is, uh, as you said, he just cast such a large shadow over our organization. And it has been just over 10 years since his death. And that that I think that gives us the proper distance to start examining his historical standing that was just so badly damaged by his you know, the mental illness that manifested itself in anti-Semitism and, you know, very virulent anti-Americanism after 9-11. But it seems to me now, over the last year or two, as I, as I see Fisher's name mentioned in online forums and even in Chess Life, it seems that 95% of what I see about him is focused purely on his chess and, is, you know, just kind of recognizes that uh, the bad stuff was all tied to mental illness. Is, is this your impression, too? Um, <clears throat> my impression is that, uh, um, people love him for his uh, great chess legacy. 
I don't I don't agree with all your premises. I know Frank Brady uh, tends to agree with you that it was a mental illness. Um, uh, you know that that's hard to define. Um, look, I, I, I think um, uh, at heart, uh, Bobby Fisher, uh, and in his behavior, uh, was not a person uh, that most of us uh, w- would want to spend time with. And most of us would be appalled at his, his views on things other than chess. We had this, <clears throat> we've had this debate, actually, you know, one of the things I've done is, uh, you know, uh, um, I was the executive director that opened the Hall of Fame, even though it was a lot of other people's work, namely Jerry DeLay. Uh, and then I was the executive director of the Hall when it was in Miami. So we've, and that was during the time of the 9-11 statements that he made um, from the Philippines that were were so awful. So we've had this discussion and this challenge many times to actually take him out of the Hall of Fame, which I never considered appropriate because there are many different kinds of artists um, in museums, uh, prominently, say, painters in museums, that were just awful people, but they were great painters. And I have to tell you, that's exactly what I would boil it down to about Fisher. Awful person, great chess player. So I think as long as we celebrate uh, his chess ability, um, we, we don't have to say that he was a great person, which he certainly wasn't. Good. I, I, I like how you've distilled that. That's And I, I especially think that the artist analogy is apt. Another item that jumped out at me in your article is that you mentioned one of our most significant success stories is the development of scholastic chess. Yet, this certainly isn't without tensions. There are, uh, I often hear snarky comments along the lines of where the U.S. US Scholastic Chess Federation but surely having such a big base of membership only speaks well of, of our future. Well, we, we always <clears throat> talked about the pyramid. Even way back in, um, you, you know, when I started with the U.S. Chess Federation, I mean, it's, it's a common idea and it's a practical idea. The bigger the base of the pyramid, uh, if you take the pyramid's height as, an, as you go up the pyramid, you increase in playing strength. Well, the bigger the, bigger the base at the bottom, the more uh, great players you have at the top. <clears throat> and of course, what we're illustrating uh, year after year uh, with all the new achievements from the young girls and boys making international norms younger than ever uh, is that we have made that base so much bigger by being in- inclusive. I think one of the <clears throat> messages that I wanted to or the facts that I wanted to make clear in my article is that the U.S. Chess Federation has survived by being inclusive. And that seems like, well, that seems like a, a, a very obvious uh, approach. <clears throat> but inclusiveness is not easy to achieve. And it's a constant um, struggle to uh, be more and more inclusive. Uh, society in general reflects that. We all kind of know that inclusiveness is good. But actually getting there uh, is difficult. And the U.S. Chess Federation has been very diligent and successful uh, at inclusiveness. And there have been these periods <coughs> sort of um, it, uh, inter, inter-organizational revolutions, if you will, where and Scholastics was one of them <coughs> in the 80s, <coughs> pardon me, where 
uh, people worked very hard, had many arguments, threatened to leave, threatened to come back. <laughs> Sometimes that threat was worse. Uh, um, to um, um, about scholastics and 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 how and how to make rules for scholastics when we first pushed for scholastics really in the 80s when when I was there but before I was exec um, <clears throat> one of the one of the bumps in the road was we had all these rules that were just they applied to you know they applied to adults and now you had thousands of kids so it was a bumpy road to figure out what to advise about chess clubs and schools and so on. And again, our great volunteers stepped in. So um, inclusiveness, and now, of course, we're in this, um, uh, uh, if I may be forgiven, uh, to calling it a velvet revolution because it's not the same kind of uh, turmoil that we had. We all, we're all agreeing and working now to involve more girls and women in chess. And I think the Chess Federation has done a, a wonderful job with that, and uh, that's going to lead to even the bigger base, bigger base all the time. So the up at the top, if you're if you're interested in master chess, you should be interested in the the general population of chess. I guess that's my summary. Do you happen to have any sense of how U.S. chess compares to other national chess organizations? Uh, I guess more specifically in the West. Uh, in terms of inclusiveness, is is it as big an issue in, in the UK and in other areas of Europe? I, I honestly think I'm not an expert on this, but uh, from what I see, I think the U.S. chess the U.S. chess is leading the way. But by the way, I, I want to do a, a complete segue because I almost made the the mistake that you would correct me on by calling U.S. chess by its old and more more um, alphabetical name. Can I do that? <clears throat> Uh, sure, go ahead. Okay, you know, uh, uh, I'm very interested in the uh, the the approach, the branding that you and the rest of the staff have with U.S. Chess, and I think that's one of the uh, important things that happens. And I want to say that uh, back in the 1990s, uh, I attempted that change to change the name to U.S. Chess, and we wound up just doing it informally, always answering the phone, U.S. Chess, and our ads. You'll see there if you go back in this this wonderful collection. I want to mention. The, 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 the landmark um, uh, achievement, I think, of these past years, past few years, has been your work in bringing all the chess lives online. So one can go back and do historical research or just flip through these. Uh, it's all very interesting, like opening a time capsule. But back in, back in the 90s, you'll see we were trying to do that. But what you've done... Uh, with the branding is to make that official, and, and I think that's a great step too. Yes, and that was uh, this was something that was spearheaded by our previous executive director, Jean Hoffman. And well, kudos to her. Right, absolutely, and we we've just taken that and run with it. And um, and and thank you for the comments on the digital archive. Let's let's tell since this is a. As we're recording this, this was only released to the public yesterday. If you go to Chess Life Online and search for Chess Life Digital Archive, you will find our entire archive of, of Chess Life going back to the first issue in 1946 and the entire archive of Chess Review Magazine, which is owned by U.S. Chess, 
that started in 1933 and went to 1969 itself. These are all available as downloadable PDFs and are fully text searchable. So whether you want to search for Al Lawrence's name or Bobby Fischer's name or even a specific chess move, you can search the entire archive in one fell swoop. Wow. So, you can search the whole, the whole archive. Wow. Yeah. yeah so, um, and if you have uh, Adobe Acrobat Pro, there's probably other ways as well, but the way I'm familiar with is Adobe Acrobat Pro. If you have all the PDFs in one folder on your computer, you can search uh, the entire folder without the files being open for those terms. So uh, it's a very powerful feature. And if you're just looking to have fun or if you're doing serious research, uh, this is a, a major benefit now of your U.S. Chess Federation, and you don't have to be a member. This is available to the uh, the public at large as part of our uh, nonprofit educational mission. Well, I, I didn't know that, that incredibly uh, uh, powerful uh, way of searching that you just described. I do have that software, so I'm going to try that uh, certainly this 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 week. That's amazing. Yep, it's it's not a hundred percent effective because of the way uh, the PDFs are created from from scanned from magazines. Because occasionally a word is a little bit too close to the center of the magazine, and and so it was hard to get it scanned. But in my tests, it's, it seems like it's close to ninety nine percent effective. <clears throat> it's a fantastic tool, and it's uh, a breakthrough really for any kind of research. Or just uh, interested hobbyist that wants to take a look back at what, you know, chess life gives you a, a very nice sort of snapshot of what chess and chess life was like back in whatever issue, of whatever year, whatever decade you picked. You know, I, I wanted to give the people a little uh, teaser when we kind of blew by Fisher a little bit, but uh, I have a... Uh, a little revealed story about Fisher in the USCF, the U.S. Chess Federation, uh, in our um, in the issue <coughs> in the issue that uh, we're talking about, and that's the story that very secretly uh, Fisher contacted us um, in the '80s, and this is when when he was dormant from chess, uh, and nobody really knew where he was. Turned out, I guess he was in Pasadena. <coughs> Sometimes getting arrested for vagrancy, but 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 he um, he contacted us and wanted a computer and up to date software, and he wanted the state of the art stuff in 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 the nineteen eighties, and so we agreed to send it to him, and we gathered it up from different uh, vendors, sent him a desktop computer and software, um, and then he contacted us and said that he needed to be shown how to use it. And we <clears throat> arranged uh, uh, um, our leading expert in the office uh, uh, on on the <clears throat> on that material to fly out to LAX and meet him. And um, so I'm going to leave the story there, and you you should read about it in the issue. And I assume that in his wanting this computer, did he specifically say he wanted it for chess purposes? Oh yes, oh yeah, oh yes, yeah. He was making a he he said he was going to make a comeback. He was going to get back into chess, and what he needed to do was catch up. <clears throat> you know, that's the old that's the old question. You know, if somebody sets out of chess for a while, well, are they going to be as good? Well, most of us agree they'd be as good, whoever it is, if they could catch up with what current theory is and play over all the uh, important games. And so that's what he was doing. And <clears throat> so he and we we kind of know now that he was he was thinking about this in, in the eighties. 
coming back to chess. And so I think it was a real representation that he was making to us. Uh, but of course, it didn't materialize in the 80s. And, and the story tells you a little bit about that. Um, and um, I can tell the story um, uh, for the blog that's, I think, never been written about. It's not about Fisher but it's about an 80s controversy. Do you have a couple minutes for that? I am so intrigued. Uh, we are making time for you. So around 1986, <clears throat> the, 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 so, the then Soviet Union uh, made overtures of playing a match in the U.S. with the best U.S. players. Now, <clears throat> um, older USCF members, life members, will, will maybe remember this. This turned into a... This turned into a uh, very um, important um, challenge and argument for the organizations. Uh, obviously, when we first heard this, uh, we, we thought this was wonderful. You know, we're going to have a, a match with, with, with the Soviet Union, um, uh, just like some of the previous uh, matches that the two countries had played. It'd be great for our development. Uh, it'd be great publicity. So Jerry DeLay worked night and day on this. He was the executive director at the time and came up with a contract and or a proposed contract uh, in Atlantic City, which was very favorable place. The, the Soviet players loved to go to Atlantic City. Uh, and then the Soviet Union dropped a bombshell. They said, well, we, we really don't want immigrants from the Soviet Union to play. Ah, so that that didn't that was an argument. Some people said, "Well, we can understand that." Most of us said, "No, if they're if they're Americans, then they get to play." Um, so uh, what ensued was basically a heartbreaking time when we had to, after much debate and even some criticism in the mainstream press. We had to say, no, we're not going to, we can't do that. Sorry, sorry, we can't have this. Okay, so about two months later, I mean, there's been no word from the Soviet Chess Federation. About two months later, I'm sitting, working late in my office, maybe 9, 10 at night. And here comes a telex. It says, um, the, the Soviet team will be arriving uh, in Toronto, they always flew through Canada, <laughs> in Toronto, and they gave all the names, you know, all the famous names, including Michael Tall and Petrosian, um, and they were like arriving in 48 hours, ready for the match. They had no idea <laughs> that you couldn't just operate that way in the U.S. You, <laughs> you had to have contracts and so forth. So we had to telex them back and say, uh, sorry, uh, we, we really didn't... Um, we never got your agreement, so we couldn't set it up. So what they had done is they had, and I guess, you know, historians tell us that the old USSR was famous for this. They'd run a bluff, which they then folded on, but they didn't understand that we couldn't operate, you know, in that way. We had to have long-term contracts. So that was rather heartbreaking. Yeah, he mentioned so. Now, my memory, too, is 86. This probably is right in the heart of perestroika. Do you think that this was uh – part of part of that well i think that's what made the overture possible yeah but um 
You know, we, we had some other dealings, uh, and I had some other dealings with uh, the old Soviet Union Chess Federation, and it was always very much like that. I mean, I mean in, at key times, it was like that, where they would make demands that you couldn't possibly meet, and then they'd go away and say, well, we can't do that, and then they'd come back and say, okay. So it was just a kind of modus operandi they had, but it doesn't work out when you need long-term planning. That, that also reminds me of what I still think is the the, the best chess joke of all time, and uh, uh, which probably our younger listeners may not be aware of, is you know when so many of the Soviets uh, were, were emigrating to the U.S. and and we had so many Soviets in our national team, and the joke was our our Russians are better than your Russians. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, they you know that goes back to inclusiveness, though. You know, during that time, the U.S. Chess, U.S. Chess, sorry, was very um, welcoming to players uh, even before the wall fell. But when the wall fell, of course, there was some controversy. Sometimes there was some jealousy of American players who had been struggling in the vineyard of chess, you know, for decades. And now here comes some stars that uh, compete uh, for the same prices, you know. Soviet Soviet trained masters, but what the what U.S. chess always did right was have this attitude of inclusiveness. Yes, you can come. Yes, you can join. Um, and I think that's one of its great strengths throughout its history. So, time for our best question contest. It's sponsored by U.S. Chess Sales, the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation. U.S. Chess Sales is the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer, and they will gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. And our question for you today, it's a two-parter. It comes from Rob Bernard, and he is asking, are there any locations in the U.S. associated with chess that are on the National Register of Historic Places? If not, what uh, what should be on the National Register? Okay, the first part of the question is, I don't know. But um, uh, it's an interesting question that I'll, I'm going to spend some time researching. Um, I, I can definitely make some intriguing suggestions. And <clears throat> one that comes to mind um, is the Marshall Chess Club. But I want to expand on that. The Marshall Chess Club, of course, is... is um, Located in, in Greenwich Village and one of our most famous clubs, um, one of our oldest clubs. Um, and I think people who follow chess read about it, know about it. I, I'm going to ask them about this question. But then I've got a related suggestion that I don't think as many people know about. Um, there is a restaurant called Keen's, K-E-E-N-E-S. It's tr- traditionally a steakhouse. It's in Midtown on the west side. Anybody could look it up. And it is the original Marshall's Chess Club because he declared it so and went there and uh, had his club with their approval there. Um, and if you look up in the ceiling when you first come in, you'll see a lot of clay pipes and other pipes. And of course, 
um, Marshall was uh, was a big smoker of, of whatever you could smoke, I think. And um, um, so that was that be one that I would think would be on the uh, registry. Um, now, there isn't a plaque that I know of there. Um, another one that comes to mind. Oh, and I might need some help thinking of the name. But, but you know, um, Morphy's residence uh, in New Orleans, where he lived and died, um, is, is a uh, very popular tourist restaurant now. Um, and you, you can actually, nowadays, you can take a little tour. When I first went there, um, they were very understated about that. I'm having trouble remembering the name. I'm, I'm Googling real fast as you're talking. Um, Brennan's Restaurant. Brennan's. And <laughs> one, interesting <laughs> one interesting and off-the-subject coincidence, if you go to the St. Louis Chess Club, uh, the, the tavern next door is Brennan's. Uh, I've asked. There's no relationship. Thank you for that question, Mr. Bernard, and your $50 gift certificate to U.S. Chess Sales is waiting for you in your inbox. I, I don't want to be boycotted by my San Francisco friends. I, w- I would have to say that the Me- Mechanics Club in San Francisco is also an extremely deserving uh, site, and I, I wonder if they don't already have uh, such an historic plaque. might be my guess that they have one. I'll research that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good addition, and I, I'm glad the fog lifted so you could mention that. It doesn't list that often these days. <laughs> so Nick, I, I want to invite our listeners to send in their questions uh, for next month's guest. Uh, he, it will be Jamal Abdul-Aleem, who will be coming back on the show for a second time. He is going to be writing the January uh, 2020 cover story about our current U.S. women's champion, Jennifer Yu. So any questions you have about that, please send them to podcast at uschess.org for your chance at winning that $50 gift certificate. I'm going to be, li- I'm going to be listening for Jamal, that's for sure. Yeah, his, his, the, the first time he was on, it was, it was very interesting. You know, Al, it's, uh, it's a great article. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, well, I, I, uh, I, I will tell you that it uh, uh, was one of the most challenging articles that, um, of course, that I ever had an assignment to write. Um, and uh, what I've tried to do is to show some sweep of the organization um, and um, uh, what qualities uh, led to it sustaining itself and to growing. Um, and I, I tell some stories uh, <clears throat> about Fisher. Uh, and about some other um, pieces of U.S. chess history that aren't um, generally talked about. Some of them rarely talked about, uh, others not so often, uh, you know, might be mentioned from time to time. Um, and, y- you know, y- you were editor of, of Chess Life uh, for, for how many years? I was right at 13 years. I think they, that's that's a terrific record. You know what the what the um, what the workload is like to do that to redo, do that every month. Our first editor. I always think that we need to give uh, a lot of credit to our first editor, who was the only paid employee uh, during the ten years uh, that uh, he put out Chess Life from 1946 to 1957, and his name was Montgomery Major. Um, he got so lonely in the job that he invented uh, a columnist, usually for his rants against the administration, um, that was called William Rojam. 
And many people didn't realize for a long time that that was just major spelled backwards. He got away with that for a long time. So, so he made up a columnist. So that was our first hire and then our first kind of imaginary hire. Yeah, I, I was always amazed uh, about the work my predecessors did in putting together Chess Magazine before the days of computers. I, I, I can't imagine typing chess moves up, not having the chess software. It it, it, it's, it sounds like a stunning amount of work to me. Well, you know, I talk a little bit about that because I was my first job was um, a managing editor. And when we when we cut and pasted, we really cut and pasted, you know. <laughs> it wasn't with a computer. It was with paper and scissors and, and wax. And, um, yeah, the technology is better. Um, but now, of course, um, um, you, like, like other workers, you're efficiently um, all, over, all over the map. Um, you, you don't have to sit in the same room and, re- and waste time commuting to the same room. But on the other hand, one of the things I mentioned in this story is, you know, I miss those lunches we used to have with the Chess Life staff. Um, so there's a certain camaraderie um, that goes away as well, you know, when when the technology comes in. But I'm sure you know all about that. Yeah, absolutely. And listeners, if you don't know, our staff has, has spread from uh, California to the UK. So we are all over the place. You know what, Al? There's something else because it was it's separated in space in this magazine. We should talk about uh, a, another part of uh, your story. We broke out into a separate story is your interview with Judy Meisner and Joan Du Bois. A- absolutely. You know, they are a treasure trove of history. They've uh, um, they they've been working for the U.S. Chess Federation for 50 years, um, obviously well over half uh, the life of the organization. And I always like the story of. Uh, uh, Joan Du Bois' um, interview call when she called for her interview, uh, she thought she wa- she always wanted to be in the medical field. And uh, when they answered the phone, as many people, you know, it's an old joke, really, but she she didn't know it was a joke. She thought that they said U.S. Chest Federation, and she thought, "Wow, this is the job for me. This will get me into the medical field." And so she came to an interview with a complete misunderstanding of what the organization was. And 50 years later, you know, she's obviously an integral part. Um, yes, those, uh, their, their firsthand recollections uh, in the sidebar to the story is, uh, I think, a very important part of the report. And I also want to mention um, that uh, we have a, a marvelous recollection uh, from Frank Brady, who was um, the person... Um, he was a business manager, which is really the, uh, uh, the parallel to the modern day executive director. And he was then the first editor to turn, um, the old newspapers into a magazine. And, and he has a great recollection as part of the story as well. He's, he's really the, the walking history of, uh, the U S chess of U S chess. Well, listeners, if this hasn't whetted your appetite for uh, this December issue, I don't know what will, but I will um, sweeten the pot a little bit more for you to make you aware, just in case you miss it, that our cover, we turned it into a contest. So please see the details on the table of contents page of page four uh, and answer our question about our cover, and you will have a, a, a chance of winning one of 10 prizes we are offering. And if you're interested in more about U.S. chess history, please listen to my One Move at a Time podcast, which will drop next Tuesday. 
as I'll be discussing U.S. chess history with our current U.S. chess president, Alan Priest. So, Al, thank you so much for joining us a fourth time. Uh, you're, you're, you're setting the bar very high for future cover writers. Well, it's always an, it's always an honor. Uh, to, to speak with you and and uh, ask good questions. Sorry, I couldn't answer all of them. <laughs> I think you did a wonderful job, and and you even you even broke broke news and some new ground with some of your answers. So thank you for that. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Al. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Cover Stories with Chess Life. Our podcast will return on the first Tuesday of next month when we will again be making a deeper dive into the pages of Chess Life. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose educational mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life for Chess Life Kids, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. Thank you and good chess.